Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Page 849, and we're reading 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 11 to chapter 3, 7. Verse 7. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visit to us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of because they are conscious of God. But how is it but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they heard, hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to the sins to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The grass withers and the, and the flower thereof fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp under our feet and a light that guides our path. Help us receive your word in humble submission. May, may we not only hear today, but be empowered and transformed by it as your people living as, living as elect exiles in this world. We, we pray for your, your Holy Spirit to do that in and through us, and we pray that uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. After reading a passage like that, how does that make you feel? Uh, can you turn to the person next to you just for 60 seconds and ask, how does that make you feel? And, and I'd love to hear from you guys. All right, let me stop you there. Just because of time, I need to stop you there. Anyone brave enough to want to shout out how you might feel about that passage? I'm guessing, let me guess. I'm guessing that many of us might feel uncomfortable, at least, from a passage like that. Many of us might feel that it's a bit uh, irrelevant to our day and age in 2024. Uh, we might feel like it's uh, you know, promoting injustice or whatever it might be. I'm guessing that's the issue because the word submission comes up a lot in this passage, doesn't it? And we all know submission is a dirty word in our culture today. Most people hate the idea of submission. And if we uh, do it, it's done begrudgingly or reluctantly. In our Western culture, uh, for example, we don't like the idea of submitting to a government we don't agree with. We don't always like the idea of submitting to people in authority in our workplaces, especially those who are incompetent or aren't pulling their weight. We definitely don't like the idea of submission in marriages, because that's oppressive, that's misogynistic, right? And why would we go back to the 1950s? Come on, submission has become a dirty word. Even Christians, and I imagine many Christians this morning in the room, cringed, right? and winced every time that word came up in the reading. But what if we saw submission in its proper light? What if we understood submission as it's expressed to us in the Bible as a, actually a beautiful, voluntary act of our freedom as Christians, because we believe and know the purpose behind it? I know, I, in everyday life, we actually do submit to things, don't we? We submit to the rules and laws of our society every day. As simple as lining up in a queue to buy something, we're submitting. It's a form of submitting to order and our values. We submit because we know it's for our good and the good of others. So what if the idea of submission as a Christian isn't portrayed as this reluctant or begrudgingly thing that's done, but out of a joyful obedience to our God? Because we love Him. Because it's for our good and the good of others. Uh, today we're going to address this and unpack this very spicy topic of submission and see how it plays out in different areas of the Christian life. And there's a lot we're going to get through today uh, in these 20 or so verses. And I'm not going to address every single thing, but we'll hopefully be a, lit more, a little bit more clear on what God calls us to uh, in living the Christian life. Let me first explain a couple of things as, a, as our position as a church, uh, especially if you're new with us. The first thing is we do believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's His Word to us and our supreme authority in life. We believe it to be true 
and good for our holiness and our living. So when we preach a series in the Bible, we, go, we generally go through it chapter by chapter and, and sometimes verse by verse, and we do our best to interpret the Bible and apply it, this ancient text, yet timeless text, to today's world as Christians. Secondly, though, there are topics like this in the Bible that we find especially challenging. Many Christians find this challenging, difficult to understand and accept. Some of it can be triggering. Some of it people will find offensive. And it wasn't much different for those that lived 2,000 years ago as well, listening to Peter write, and, uh, write this text and, and, and preach this. My hope as a pastor and as, a, as our church, uh, in, in our church, is that the Word of God and His Spirit will give us a peace, will give us a confidence, knowing that these words are coming from the same good God who has freed us in Christ and secured us something far greater than what this life can offer. Okay, so that's my hope. And if you're not a Christian, I hope it clears up some misunderstandings that you might have heard maybe in the media or whatever you see in the movies. Explains a little bit more to you about what, why Christians do what we do. Okay, so my caveat's there. Now, to briefly catch you up to where we're at. So far, this letter by Peter, he's writing to the churches. Peter's an apostle of Jesus. He's writing to the churches after Jesus has died and resurrected uh, about how to live in this world. He's writing to the early church that's spread across like the Mediterranean Middle East. And, and to be Christians, uh, what does it look like to be gospel-centered, to be holy, to be living for Jesus, this countercultural life? We're in the section now where Peter uh, gets practical. From chapter 2, verse 11, where we started today, all the way actually to the midway through chapter 4, in the original text, it's actually one big, long paragraph. Okay, so we're just taking a chunk of this big, long paragraph um, because there's a lot here already. And we're going to begin there in verse 11 to 12, sort of as a header for what we're going to hear today. Let's read it again. I've got it on the screen for us. This is not what, this one. 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day he visits us. It'll be really important for you guys to keep your Bibles open today because I want you to follow along with where I'm going. But there, verse 11 and 12, he reminds us of who we are. We're citizens. We're uh, citizens of a greater kingdom. We have a greater king. His name is Jesus. And that's our heavenly home. Uh, we, we have that. We don't belong in this world. We, uh, that heavenly home awaits us. We get to be with God forever. Chapter 1 pointed us to that. We've been given this new identity. We're Christians. And as we live that out in our lives, uh, we seek out, uh, we're saved by His grace and mercy. We seek holiness. We seek repentance of our sin. We want to flee from temptation and sin. We want to pursue lives that are doing good deeds that glorify God so that others will glorify God. The, cr Christianity in the first century was a new religion. It was a very new thing, a new faith. And so people in the Roman Empire approached Christianity with a lot of suspicion. It was a lot of negativity, uh, much like people today. But if Christians lived in a way that stood out, loved their neighbors, served the weak and vulnerable, cared for widows and orphans, being generous with their time and money, could anyone really point their finger and say Christianity is bad for society? That's what Peter's getting at here. But he's also saying that with our lifestyles, let's be evangelistic in nature. And what I mean by evangelistic is, is in the way that we conduct ourselves. Let's, let's, let's do good, not for the sake of our reputation and status, but because we want to proclaim Jesus through our actions. Evangelistic in nature is proclaiming Jesus through the way we live and our conduct, our faith, to a watching world with the hope that they will too one day come to worship God. That's what verse 12 is referring to. They may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, it's from that point, okay, that he launches into how we live as Christians in humble submission to those who God has put in roles of authority. 
we have multiple verses that we're going to look at today. I'll just give a quick, you know, sort of summary. 2 verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. 2 verse 18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. A lot of tricky things there, a lot of uh, what people would call trigger words perhaps. Uh, you know, we're talking about slaves today, we're talking about wives. I mean, uh, why'd I come today? It's going to be tricky, but I think it's going to be really helpful once we, we, once we uh, figure this out. Now, we've got these three categories, right? Governments and slaves and marriages. Let's define what first submission means. Let's talk about submission first. When we think about submission, we often think of, usually, it's, it, we, the, what comes to mind is a, sort of a demeaning, like a subjugation, don't we? We think of uh, being a doormat, letting others walk all over us, being a dog that you know, rolls over on command. That's what we think about, don't we? When we think about the word submission, it's a dirty word uh, because we think of those examples. But when Peter and the Bible talks about submission, it's encouraged as a voluntary act. It's, it's freely given. It's a submission that comes not from weakness, but from strength. A submission that does have boundaries. It's not forced upon us. It's a submission uh, that uh, we have control over and we freely give, one that we choose. And more often than not, at least in the Bible, and it's in the context of ordered relationships particularly if there's some form of role that gives them some form of authority, whether it's, uh, it's in society or spiritual authority. We have orders and structures generally in our society, don't we? I mean, we see it all the time. Parents uh, and children, parents have authority over their children. They teach and model and they raise their child. They have authority over their children. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, honestly. My two-year-old, she tells me what I can or can't do often and screams at me if I disobey her commands. But I do contrary to belief, have authority over her, right? We have leaders in our companies, leaders in our, in our workplaces, there's order and structure, and we submit to our, our bosses and our managers. They tell us what to do, they give us direction, we follow their leadership. There's order and structure in these relationships in everyday life, isn't there? Now, we can't take submission here in the Bible out of its context. Submission doesn't mean we put up with abusive people in authority. Bullies and narcissists who manipulate and take advantage of you. We're not a doormat to be trampled all over. We aren't lesser in equality or dignity. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you are lesser as a person because you, you choose to submit. And with handling pa- passages like this, we have to be careful of how we interpret it and apply it. But as the word suggests, it does incorporate a willingness, a sense of obedience to follow direction and decisions made from someone else in some form of authority. Why? Because... For the Christian, out of our freedom and out of our liberty in Christ, out of our strength, not our weakness, we want to live, again, verse 11, 12, live good lives that honor God. Submission is an appropriate expression of our obedience to God. I'll say that submission is an appropriate expression of our obedience to God. When you read verse 15 and 16 that we read, it's on the next screen. It says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Live as free people. Live as God's slaves. We do it out of our willingness, out of our freedom to do good, to love God. That's where submission stems from, okay? Now, let's get into the first category Peter addresses. In verse 13, he says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. And then verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, honor the emperor. Now, the church lived during a time where the government persecuted Christians. It was, it was hard to be a Christian. 
it was the, the government was authoritarian. The, the temptation for Christians then, when you become a Christian, is say, hey, I'm not of this world anymore. I live for a greater king. I don't have to listen or follow Roman rule under the emperor. He's not my king. I follow Jesus. That's the temptation for a lot of Christians. They, but Peter's saying, don't throw off the authority of the government just because you're a Christian now. Submit to them. Now, here's the thing we see in today's culture. Sometimes Christians act as if we're entitled, especially in the West. We're entitled, and the government should be Christian because of our Western her- heritage. Have you ever met Christians who think that the government needs to have Christian values? But as we look at the government today, especially in Australia, we're seeing more and more uh, how secular our government is, with particular laws that are being passed that aren't in line with our beliefs. We might not understand, we might not agree with the decision-making of our ruling government, but we're still to honour them. We're still to pray for them, just like we did this morning. We still pray for them as they lead our nation, because we believe God has put them there. And we want to trust God. Let's not forget, we, we do have especially for us in Australia, we do have many privileges, don't we? We can voice our opinions. We can freely protest. We, we should vote well and wisely. Elections are coming up in a couple of weeks. But there's a thing here that Peter adds in verse, verse 16 that we read just in that last slide. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil because we are God's slaves. We belong to God. We ultimately submit to Him, don't we? And so that's, that's what we need to consider as we practice our faith in a certain way. There'll be times the government might permit something that isn't good for our faith. And at other times they might forbid something Christians practice uh, in the way that we trust and, and live out our faith. An example of that, if you don't know, in, in Victoria right now, did you know it's illegal to pray for your friend or your own child even as a parent if it relates to gender, ident- gender identity? Lawmakers are saying that it's an act of suppression that can cause injury if you pray for them. You can be, I don't know what the punishment is, but it's against the law. There may be laws more and more in the future being passed across our country that might clash with our faith and practice. What do we do? Peter says we ultimately obey God. Honor the emperor, yes, honor them, be respectful, but obey God ultimately. We are his slaves. We serve him. We saw this very thing in history, didn't we, where Christians living in Nazi Germany, right, during the, the, the Third Reich, is that what it was called? The, the reign and tyranny of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, you know, where the evil of killing, where, the, where we saw the evil in killing and torturing Jews. It was so horrific, wasn't it? Christians simply could not sit back and obey. Their allegiance was to God. You know, Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they, they, they stood up and they, they planned to take down the government. We obey God first and foremost. Jesus himself says, give to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. He says that in the Gospels. We see submission, it has limits. While we might not always like our government or the decisions they make, our God calls us to respect everyone and honor our leaders in authority. But ultimately, we obey God. So do you see how living such good lives so that others will glorify God is, is being played out with the government? The second category, slaves, right? Another uh, hot topic Uh, for Christians. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your master. That's what verse 18 says. Slaves, they're under the authority of a master, right? Now, don't read this and think Christians endorse slavery. It's one of those arguments that we often hear people knocking Christianity, you know, well, you guys support slavery. No, we don't. Modern day slavery that we think of today, where people are sold and trafficked, not treated like a human being with equality, that's an abomination. You know, the Christians like William Wilberforce, they stood up to abolish that practice many years ago. 
But here, Peter is speaking to the con- context and uh, accepting the reality that he, the times that he lives in, that there were slaves. There were slaves and there were masters. Uh, and, and in ancient times, slavery was usually something that happened when you owed a debt to someone and you didn't have the money to pay them back. You'd put yourself into their debt by, by being a slave to them. You didn't have the money, so that's how you paid it off. Uh, even the, the, though this slavery happened, uh, the Bible actually talks about how if you can be free, be free. So they're not endorsing slavery. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can read it in your own time. It talks about how slaves, if you can be free, choose freedom. But Peter is speaking about slaves and, and how their relation to their masters do good. And whether your master is kind or whether they're harsh, can continue to submit as a witness of Christ. This is, this is the situation you're in. Do your best to be a good witness of Christ. It goes back to giving everyone respect, being upright and good in our deeds to win people to Jesus, to be winsome. Imagine if you were a slave back then and talking badly about your master, gossiping, uh, being really difficult, being really you know, argumentative. We wouldn't be any different to any other slave, would we? But as a Christian, if you were a slave, be winsome. It's out of our obedience to God that slaves submit. In verse 18, it says slaves in reverent fear of God. He's the one we obey. He's the one we serve. It's to God first uh, that we choose to voluntarily submit. Now, none of us here are slaves, I hope. And how, how do we make sense of this in the 21st century? I think that the closest example would probably be the workplace as an example. Not the perfect example, as if you don't like your job, just quit and find another job somewhere else. Uh, we have that freedom. But there's a principle, at least, there where we uh, do need to consider what it looks like to submit to our managers, our bosses, with respect and honor. Will we be respectful still and winsome in our actions, in our positions, or will we be like everyone else in the workplace in the way that we uh, are gossiping or the way we retaliate if we don't like something, our unforgiveness, an eye for an eye, will we, when we feel hard done by, we, when we're treated harshly? Yes, we have rights. There are legal pathways, HR to talk to, escalation processes, and by all means, use those to address the injustices you might experience. But I think Peter is addressing the heart. What's our attitude? What's the posture of our hearts? Will we be gracious and model Christ in our submission? It's why Peter, at this point, he, he points us to, to Jesus. In, in, in verse 21, it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for, for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As a Christian, we come from a place where we know our sins have been forgiven by grace, by mercy. We didn't deserve that. And so we no no longer live for ourselves. We live for righteousness. We operate out of a, a freedom, a security in Christ, and we look to him for our security. Think about that. Jesus experienced the greatest injustice in the history of humankind, but also see his perfect example and seek to be Christ-like, seek to still do good even if we suffer under an unjust employer or risk getting in trouble for secretly praying for your friend when it might be our Lord. Continue to do good in reverent fear of God, looking to our Savior Jesus who suffered for us. Now that's really hard, isn't it? I find this really hard to, to, to preach and to, to preach to myself. I mean, not retaliate, 
to suffer in the face of injustice, turn the other cheek. If you guys know me, man, I'm, I'm big on the justice. I'm big on payback. I don't want to enable sin. I don't want to encourage bullies. I don't want to endure more pain myself. And so Peter, he's, he's, he's definitely not saying we shouldn't call the police, right? You should call the police if a crime has been committed against you. And I think Peter would encourage us to speak truth, to stand up to injustice, uh, and to stop enabling sin and have boundaries. But it's the attitude again and the posture of our hearts Peter wants us to address. Jesus himself bluntly teaches us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies. That's really hard. It's countercultural. Will our hearts be consumed by vengeance and retaliation and payback, or will we look to God for our strength? Christ as our model, who forgave and loving, lovingly uh, showed us grace. Christ shows us the beauty of submission, doesn't he? As he willingly gave up his rights, he stepped off his throne. He made himself nothing to serve an ungrateful and rebellious person like me. Whether we live as citizens under a government we disagree with or work under a, under a boss that we, follow to, uh, we struggle to follow, we're called to respect and to live lives doing good because we live for a God who is greater. This is what submission is going to look like. Again, like we read in verse 11 to 12, let us live such good lives that non-believers may see our good deeds and glorify God. And that brings me to our third category, the one we've all been waiting for, this idea of submission in marriages. As we consider Christ as the paradigm for our relationships, we need to consider how that shapes our marriages. Now, I know everyone here is not married yet, or might not be married in this lifetime, but marriages uh, are, are, were fundamental in their, their context. It was part of the societal fabric uh, in, in, in their culture, right? And so he's speaking into that, uh, especially for Christians, and how we conduct ourselves. So he's going to start off with wives. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your life. I'll stop there. Uh, Peter is following this thread of being winsome, isn't he? Being winsome and doing good deeds in marriages, uh, in marriage as Christians. If a wife can fearlessly, in reverence to God, submit to her husband, and a husband can, like Christ, uh, which we'll get to, serve, honor, and respect his wife, it will be winsome to the people around who are watching. It will be a picture of the gospel as a marriage is a, really a snapshot of God's relationship with us. Two parties complementing each other in the roles as husbands live out their servant-hearted leadership and wives uh, their submission. Both roles which Christ has also, Christ himself has modeled to us, both leadership and submission uh, to us. You see, the Bible's view of marriage are often labeled as, again, misogynistic and oppressive. But that's not it at all when we actually understand what this passage is saying. He isn't speaking into women's dignity or quality, their value or worth. He's not speaking into that. Because he, later on, he'll talk about how God, uh, that God has made men and women uh, co-heirs in Christ. We are equally loved, equally treasured by God. But rather, it's a view on role and responsibility and, again, an ordered relationship when it comes to the household as God intended. To be clear, it's the household. Peter's not talking about all women submitting to all men here. It's in this marriage covenant and home where this is being played out. And it's not the first time it comes up in the Bible. Uh, it comes up in, in another passage in Ephesians chapter 5. You can read it as, as well there. Let me give you some context because Peter, he's addressing uh, wives that are married to non-believers, right? 
In the early church that Peter's writing to, they did live in a patriarchal society in the ancient Roman Empire. Families would be led by husbands, and generally that meant whatever religion the husband had, the wives and children would have that religion too. So imagine then a wife that gets converted to Christianity before the husband does. Imagine what kind of antagonism or the challenges that, that marriage would face if the wife was converted first. Christianity was, was met with suspicion. It was known as a cult in the early days. Imagine the shame the husband would have felt knowing his wife had converted to Christianity. Peter's not saying divorce, divorce your husband. He's not saying Bible bash your husband either. But submit still to his leadership. Respect, win him over to Christ through sharing the gospel, particularly in your conduct. And imagine the effects that could have. A non-believing husband who experiences and sees the change in a wife's conduct because of their faith. That she's become more servant-hearted, more patient, more generous and kind, more than she was before. If you're in that situation, what if you could win your husband to Jesus because you gave them front row seats to how good the gospel is? The same goes for for husbands who uh, are married to a non-believing wife. If you aren't yet married, I I encourage you to consider this yourself as as if you're single here or dating still. Think about this. Because I want to encourage you, especially if you're dating, to consider who you're going to marry. I always say this to people in our church. I encourage you strongly. To, a Christian should, you should seek after to marry a Christian because God commands us to. But it's also when it gets to marriage and your love for God, that's going to clash. And you're going to see how hard that is to live in, in a way that's both honoring God, your husband, uh, as well as being a wife as, or being a husband and your wife. That's going to be really hard. I encourage you strongly to find a spouse that's Christian. But here in this situation, we see this command and it's really countercultural for, for the Christians in the first century too. It was counterintuitive as it is for us, but it's for different reasons. Wives in that day, submission should have looked like following the husband's religion. But Peter's saying, no, submit to God first, and then submit and honor your husband as a person you married with the goal to win him over to Christ. It's countercultural. It's hugely, it would have been unacceptable for wives in their culture. But likewise, in today's culture, again, I've said this, submission is a dirty word. We've seen it haven't we, abused the effects, we've seen the horrible effects of misogyny and toxic masculinity, the abuse of power by men. I think it's appalling what we've seen in history. When this, when this Bible passage has been misinterpreted and men have used it as a weapon. We've progressed from traditional households and seen women flourish in the workforce and we've seen women bring positive changes to the world and that's a good thing. And we're all for equality for men and women that even that even. We today, right, will cringe when we hear commands like this. But what does this command actually mean? What does it mean for Christian marriages? Let me explain what it's not first, okay? It's not about male dominance. It's not about a woman having to do everything her husband tells her. It's not about being a doormat or not having any influence in the decisions or direction of the family. Again, we just read it, right? The, the, the woman married to a non-believer is influencing the husband. So we should, you know, women, wives... It's not that. It's not that you can't have any influence. This command is an encouragement, though, for wives to live for Jesus and bring glory to God in their roles, allowing their husband to lead. There's not much more there that that it gives us. What it does give us is verse 5. I'll read this to you. For this is, it's on the screen, for, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their husbands, so this part, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
That's all he gives us in terms of what submission is going to look like. He uses this example from Sarah and Abraham all the way back in Genesis. Sarah and Abraham, they're, they're both believers, right? They be- both believe in God. And there's this instance here. There is an instance in Genesis 18 where Sarah calls, refers to uh, Abraham as her Lord, as a sign of respect. But I think what the reference is here is thinking about how Sarah married Abraham and followed him. If you know the story in Genesis, I can't go into it. Uh, we did a whole series of, in this a couple of years ago. But God called Abraham to take his family and his belongings to go to the promised land, trusting God, God's leadership, right? And what Sarah did is she had to trust Abraham's leadership in doing that. Would it have been scary for Sarah? 100%. Would she have felt anxious about the future? Definitely. Would she have doubted at times and been uncertain? Of course. Were there times she shouldn't have submitted because it led to sin? Yes. There's stories of that in Genesis. But Peter uses Sarah as an example of a wife who submitted to Abraham's leadership and decisions for the family. Abraham wasn't perfect. He wasn't always worthy to be submitted to or anything like that. But it was an expression of her obedience to God. This idea of submission for a wife to a husband, Christian or not Christian, is a voluntary choice, a willingness in their obedience to God to allow their husbands to lead. Now let me be clear, it doesn't mean a man or husband can demand or force it from their wives. Of course, you can talk about it with your wives, discuss it, but you can't demand or force it. Christian wives should feel safe to speak up if they feel their husband's actions and decisions will cause harm to the marriage or the family to stray from God, right? Christian wives should feel safe. Wives should seek immediate help if there's any form of abuse. Seriously. This is because Christian submission is not about male dominance, but a call to be obedient to Jesus so that God can be glorified. There's a few things Peter mentions too. He speaks about adorning themselves with braided hair and jewelry. He's not saying you're not permitted uh, to wear earrings or put on makeup. He's not saying that, but he's saying your beauty shouldn't simply be outward. It, it's the inner beauty. It's the inner beauty of a transformed heart, a heart that's shaped by gospel love and goodness. That's what's beautiful before God. That's what God sees. That's for everyone, isn't it? God sees our hearts. A gentle and quiet spirit, that, that mentioned there, that's actually a command not just for wives. It's actually in other parts of the Bible too. We're all called to be gentle. We're all called to have a quiet spirit. Uh, it's the idea of, of uh, the quiet spirit is not to be silent. It's just this idea of not being like this busybody, gossiping, causing trouble, nagging, that sort of person. It applies to all Christians, but here he's speaking specifically to, to wives in this, in this circumstance. But when you think about it, it makes sense in the sense that wouldn't that inner character and beauty be what you want your husbands to love you for? In, not only today, but in 30, 40, 50 years' time? Because the reality is our external beauty will fade. I'm living proof of it, okay? I used to be beautiful in my 20s. But imagine if your spouse will continue to be so enthralled by your inner beauty, even if the outward changes and fades. And if you're single or dating and preparing for marriage, start now. Clothe your heart with Christ-like beauty. I know the influences on social media. They tell us to spend all our time and money on skincare routines and the gym. I'd encourage you to invest even more time on that inner beauty because that's what's beautiful. That's what's beautiful before God. See the beauty of Christ. Let that be your vision in life. Now, I am a, I'm aware I'm a, I'm a man talking about wives, okay? So I'm going to talk about husbands now, verse 7. And I've got a lot to say about this, even though it's one verse. Because I'm a man myself. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live, live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In Ephesians 5, uh, when Paul talks about marriage there, there's a lot to say about husbands. Um, Peter only has one verse for us. 
But it says husbands in the same way. That's how it starts. In the same way. They're called to be Christ-like. They're called to be servant-hearted in their marriages, to serve their wives like Christ. The outworkings are going to be different, aren't they? In Ephesians 5, there's heaps about being, uh, that's where we get the basis of being a leader uh, in the family. There's, uh, God calls us, the, the, the order of the, the marriage, is, is God calls us to be a leader, uh, a servant-hearted, a sacrificial leader like Jesus, who lay down his life. We're called to lay down our lives for our wives. And Peter, I think, is adding to that. Here he's saying, be considerate and be respectful of her, knowing that God has called her to submit. Husbands, we're not taking advantage of that. We're not abusing our authority. We're not mistreating our wives. In fact, you're called to lay down your life for her. That's what considerate, being considerate is going to look like. It's not about thinking just of yourself and what you want. You're now part of a team. You communicate with her. You listen to her heart. You understand her needs. You protect her. You honor her. You love her. You model Jesus to her. You speak well of her. You admire her. Make sacrifices and lay down your life for her. That's what being considerate and respectful means. Now, I'm a dad now, and I know we don't have heaps of dads here, but I want to speak to dads for a moment because some of you guys might become dads in the future as well, and this is the stage of life I'm in, and I'm learning this a lot myself, and I don't always get it right, and I've had to have long talks with Heidi about how I can be more considerate and respectful of her. And I'm also learning this from other marriages. Over the, the, the 20 years of being a Christian myself, I've heard about marriages that struggle and marriages that haven't made it, especially when kids come into the picture. It's very difficult. What will, it be, what will being considerate to your wife look like when you become a dad? And one of the most the things I've had to learn, one of the most inconsiderate things we can do as a dad is we can act entitled to our hobbies and our personal time when our wives, who are now mums, have zero time to themselves. I have I felt this sense of entitlement myself before. We, we go to work and we feel like it's a high-pressure job and we come home and we just want to rest. I get it. I totally get that. But one of the things I've learned as when I was full-time parenting, I sent Heidi away to Sydney. I've done that a few times. Being a full-time parent is a high-pressure job as well. It's very stressful. It's exhausting. And really, it's a fast track to burnout. But I've heard that there are husbands and dads who think moms should do this all the time. Moms who still have to work a full-time job or earn an income, but also expected to keep the house in order, to cook and clean, give up their ambitions and hobbies so they're the primary care of their child. This is just a suggestion that I've, I've had to consider. What if being considered as a dad means sacrificing our hobbies? and free time to be considerate for our wives. For the sake of our family, to, to be a sacrificial leader, so we can be present, so we can lead and love well. So you can be a husband that your wife will joyfully want to practice Christ-like submission to. In the wise words of my wife Heidi, she once said, how can you lay down your life for your wife if you can't even lay down your remote. I know, right? And we can substitute remote with video game control or golf clubs or your investments or whatever personal pursuit that's distracting you from your God-given responsibilities as a husband and father. Husbands and fathers, what, when was the last time you truly talked to your wife and listened to the burdens of their heart? 
My encouragement to you today, don't be passive. Be actively considerate, respectful to her and her needs. This, uh, this, uh, you know, I'm just saying this because I've observed over the years and I've wrestled with this too. And I want to encourage you as a husband and a dad to consider this as well. To be a family that's complementing each other. A husband and wife. Where we're being considerate and respectful of our wives. Because when we're not, Peter says our prayers are going to be hindered. And what I think he's saying there is your relationship with your wife is a relationship, is a reflection of your relationship with your God, who has every right not to answer your prayers if you're mistreating and being inconsiderate to your wife, one of his daughters. Be considerate, be respectful in your obedience to God. Now, just briefly, when Peter refers to wives as the weaker partner, I know many of us instantly think of physical strength, Okay. Generally speaking, yes, men biologically us, uh, have more testosterone. We put on more muscle. We're stronger. That's why, you know, male and female sports. But I've also, let's, I'll, I'll be honest, I've seen my wife give birth, okay? <laughs> that's another type of strength. This isn't a diss, okay, at women being physically weak. I don't think Peter's saying that. Peter's calling wives the weaker partner in the context, again, of this authority and submission idea. Wives are called to submit. That means they nat naturally have lesser authority, you could say, so the weaker partner, lesser authority. Therefore, husbands need to work harder to be considerate and respectful in their leadership of their wives. That's what it, I think it's saying there. I think it's about that context of authority and submission. Now, if you want to read up more on this, uh, I'd love to recommend a book by Claire Smith. It's called God's Good Design. She's from Sydney. She does a lot of research in this, and I believe she does really accurate biblical interpretation. She's got a whole chapter just on this, uh, these seven verses that we just read, and it helps that she's a woman writing on this topic. But let me finish. And as I do, let's go back to where we started. Let's go back to verse 11 and 12. Can I got that on the screen, I think, in the next verse. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I think that undergirds what this whole section is pointing us to. Uh, there's an author in the UK, his name is Glenn Scrivener. He's a, he's a preacher and, and author. He wrote a book called The Air We Breathe. It's worth reading. Um, and it's all about this idea that the human rights, the freedom, uh, the kindness, the equality we experience in today's Western culture is underpinned really by the Christian faith. It was so countercultural in the first century to be loving to widows and orphans and to uh, be respectful as husbands and all that stuff. But now, today, the, 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 uh, the advantages that we have, the air that we breathe, it actually comes, we owe it to the Christian faith. I really think it's a really helpful book. And so while many outside of the church today think Christianity is this bigoted and unreasonable and outdated faith, religion, we can actually see throughout history, it's actually Christianity that underpins and makes sense of many of our Western values that we enjoy and take for granted. And it begins with difficult, countercultural passages like this living such good lives, doing good deeds because we want to honor God. Peter says, so others around us can be pointed to his goodness and his glory, the goodness that we have in Christ. When we look to Jesus, we see the one who has all authority in the world and submitted himself voluntarily to serve and sacrifice his life for you and for me and for the rest of humanity in his submission to God. We have been given this gospel vision from him. And so we can be empowered because our Lord and King Jesus went before us. Let's live in a particular way so people around you, they'll take notice. 
And, and one day they too can see the beauty of Christ and give glory to God too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who, who is, our, is our perfect model. We don't always get it right. We find it really difficult at times to live out. Well, we pray, Lord, that your spirit will give us strength. To give us strength to be a people who, who submit to authority. To be a people who submit because of our obedience to you. Help us to keep having that great gospel vision, Lord, to be winsome in our actions, ultimately, because we know uh, we live in a watching world. Uh, uh, the people, our families are watching us, the, our workplaces are watching us, our non-Christian friends are watching us. I pray, Lord, that we'll live out our faith in very real and practical ways, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, because we want to obey and honor your name above our own. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.